all wrestling fans have that one match. The winner and new world heavyweight champion, the American Dream, Nasty Rhodes. That we remember every single detail. One that made our hearts jump out of our chest. The moment that took our breath away. CM Punk is leaving through this hometown crowd with a WWE championship. I think he just kissed the WWE goodbye. The match that created lifelong wrestling fans. For life. Busted Open proudly presents. The matches that made us. Here's your host, Dave LaGreca. Welcome to the matches that made us. Talking about Sting and Ric Flair from Clash of the Champions, March 27th, 1988. Such a big opportunity to talk about this match with Sting having his last match at AEW Revolution. Very special edition of the Busted Open podcast. And who better to talk about this match and to talk about Sting than the innovator of violence, the landlord of the house of hardcore, and the heart and soul of professional wrestling, Tommy Dreamer. Ed also welcoming in our host each and every Sunday with Justin Labar for our Sunday edition of Busted Open right here on Sirius XM Fight Nation and the voice of Chicago, Jonathan Hood. Jonathan Tommy, how are you guys? What up? How are you today? I'm great. Jonathan? I I feel like 1988. I don't know about you guys. I feel like 1988. I feel like I'm a junior in high school again, talking about the glory days of the NWA. I love it. And you're right. I mean, when this episode of Clash of the Champions, the very first episode of Clash of the Champions on March 27th, 1988, I was in high school as well. Tommy, I know you were in high school, and if you guys remember, this was the NWA going after the WWF. The WWF tried to screw the NWA a couple of times, once with the bunkhouse stampede, uh, and then this was a way for the NWA to fire back at WrestleMania, because what better way than to fire back at WrestleMania, but then having a free event on free tv and that's exactly what the nwa did march 27th 1988 going head to head with wrestlemania 4 and i don't know about you guys but what was i watching that night i was watching class of the champions on wtbs what were you watching jonathan i was watching as well we did not have cable in chicago at that time but my friend Antoine on 79th Street had the big satellite dish. And so that's when I went over for the big events on TBS. I would go to his home and to be able to watch this. And that's where I saw Clash of Champions 1. The reason why is because for me, guys, it was a different match for Ric Flair. It wasn't Flair against Barry Windham, which we saw before. Classic matches that they had. It wasn't Ric Flair against Dusty Rhodes. This was an opponent that I saw from the Universal Wrestling Federation and Sting. And we saw Sting as a tag team wrestler for a long time. When you had the merger of the UWF and the NWA, here comes Sting. And for me, Sting was so vibrant and so different than everything else we saw in the NWA. 
that's what I chose that night to watch. Clash one to see how Sting would fare against Ric Flair, Tommy. The the build, right? Uh, and all this stuff. I'm just turned 17 when this match is happening. Uh, I'm the biggest Sting fan. But if you talk about the build and you just, you know, you reflect history-wise, Sting is having short matches. Sting is captivating uh, crowds everywhere. And this is Sting's big, biggest match of his career. Yes, he, you know, he, we saw a little bit of him in Memphis. We saw a little bit of him in the UWF, but now he's going to be this breakout star. Cause also, I mean, if you remember, Dave, a lot of those guys who came from UWF quickly disappeared. Well, but we spoke to Lex Luger, Tommy, and Lex Luger's perception of the UWF was the B team. Yep. And here comes, you know, this guy named Sting. And I got to just tell you about the difference of how Sting was when you were there. His athleticism. Diving over the top rope. I know we see moves like that all the time. We're talking, this didn't, wasn't a big occurrence. Also for a guy his size. Lex Luger is the one who tells us, hey, he played basketball. His vertical jump, which led to the Stinger splash. Which technically at times was his finish. Um, then he went into you know the leg lock. This was also build the leg lock and the figure four leg lock. Two different moves, both working on the leg. But Sting with the face paint. We're also going around the Ultimate Warrior time. Another guy who we started with. So they're both muscular. Both have face paint. Sting at the time still inexperienced, but you know just different things. When I talk about you know this was the beach surfer version of the sting, the bleach blonde hair, the face paint, the, the boots, traditional wrestling boots were laced up boots. Sting is now wearing different style of boots. I know for myself, because after this, it's one year later where I'm now wrestling. And I remember getting gear. And I told you this, I wanted to be a version of sting meets the great Muda Once I started, and I thought I was like this smart wrestling fan. The industry is so different. There was one place that made your boots in pro wrestling, and the wait list was forever. That's why you always heard from other people, oh, I got I had to buy these boots off of somebody, or I ordered my boots way in advance because there was one boot maker in the entire industry. Also, getting that person's phone number was a bit of a, you had to earn it like my trainer. Oh, you're not ready for your boots yet. Well, I can't wrestle in sneakers, but these are things that you have to worry about. There was also one gear maker. That's it. If you had somebody who made your gear and you know, we, Mr. Wrestling number two's wife made, um, you know, all the famous robes, but there was other people. Well, I had this person, I had, but I'm talking about one official pro wrestling gear maker. And if you talk about the influence of Sting, every waistband of every gear was the same until Sting comes along and they extended the waistband. Not because of like you're heavier, just because Sting had, it was a two to a three inch waistband. And then so you could order your thing. Can I get a regular waistband or a Sting waistband? So this is now just amongst the industry standards when also, again, this time wrestling is still real and there are no shows like this. And 
the biggest debate was, is wrestling real or is it fake? But if you're a wrestling fan, it's real. And so you're just talking about a guy who literally changed the industry from within inside. You had the road warriors with the face paint, but now here's the first real singles guy outside of warrior and also the body and all that stuff doing stuff that is so normal today. But back then I remember his dives over the top. You were like, what am I seeing? Because nobody ever did it before. And then sting to me is the best way to describe sting was energy, energy captured. And when he came out, you just knew this guy was going to be special. He had a special buzz about him his entire career, but this was going to be the biggest match of his career where you also say to yourself, could Sting lose? Because this bottle of energy is facing the greatest pro wrestler of the modern time. It's it's the so breakout what the performance. What's going to happen? It was big main event feel, hence why we had the judges and all that stuff. Well, so I'll ask you the same question I asked Jonathan, Tommy. Do you remember, were you watching Clash or were you watching WrestleMania that night? I was watching The Clash in my den, uh, and I had two of my friends over. And in my other, in my living room, I was uh, recording the pay-per-view and making sure that my father didn't go in and change the channel. That's what I was doing. I remember it like it was yesterday. And we had, like, I used to have pay-per-view parties because my father wasn't going to always spend the money or I had to use it as gifts, but he wasn't, you know, now pay-per-views are coming up once a month. And so I had to think of ways to get, and I was just like, Hey guys, you're going to come over, you know, let's chip in 10 bucks. And I would give it to my parents. And, you know, it was just like that type of deal. And pay-per-views weren't as expensive. They probably were like 1999. So, but then it was like, if three or four people give you 10 bucks, go get soda, go get chips, go get stuff like that. And we'd, we'd have pay-per-view parties well, at my well, house. Well, I was an NWA guy through and through. So to me, it was an easy decision to pick Clash of the Champions over WrestleMania because I was such a big fan of the NWA. And you guys talked about the story going in. We talk about Sting, but it's funny how what Sting had to deal with with the NWO later on in his career. It was the same thing here with the Four Horsemen. The Four Horsemen were always interfering in Ric Flair's championship matches. What did they do? They had J.J. Dillon in a shark cage suspended uh, over over the ring. Shades of uh, Precious Paul Erling with Tommy Rich and Buzz Sawyer uh, back in the last battle of Atlanta. I found it very, very funny. And this is probably something else that wouldn't happen today, guys, is the fact that Ric Flair hailed from Greensboro, North Carolina, right? At that time, that match is in Greensboro, North Carolina. And... The fans are booing Ric Flair. Those fans were behind Sting in that match. And and if I I think if it would be different in 2024. But Jonathan, watching that match back uh last night before taping this show, the fans were definitely behind Sting that night. They were behind Sting because Sting didn't look like anybody else in the NWA. That's why. Someone uh built from California. Bleach blonde hair, that body, that look. You hadn't seen anyone like that because usually that looks like Hands of Stone, Ron Garvin. That looks like Dick Murdoch. That looks like, you know, again, the, the wrestler of the day. But you, at that time, we're talking about 1988. I felt like 
we're seeing the wrestler of the 90s in Sting because of the way he looked. Mm. As I mentioned before, seeing him at UWF and Tommy's right, even the singles matches he had for Bill Watts, it was very short, three, four, five-minute TV matches. And other times, he was a tag team wrestler with Rick Steiner, part of that Hot Stuff International with uh, Hot Stuff Eddie Gilbert, Jack Victory with Hollywood John Tatum, with Missy Hyatt, and Rick and uh, Rick Steiner and Sting were a tag team. And they were a very good tag team as well. But it was kind of like Sting was there, but he was learning on the job under Bill Watts. Now he comes to the NWA, and the reason why he popped is because, man, this looks totally different. His promos, totally different. He wasn't out there for four or five minutes talking about the bottom line is. He would just say stuff, right? It was so different, a different cadence, a different personality. And so I think that's why people were behind him because, as I mentioned, a fresh match. We hadn't seen this before. Usually in that spot, Tommy, we're seeing Dusty again, different stipulations against Ric Flair, Barry Windham. You know, it's going to be a 60-minute classic. But that whole thing that I remember, uh, and Tommy's, <laughs> Tommy's right, you had to make sure that nobody messed with the VCR. If you change the channel, that's the channel that would be on and taped, right? If yep. you mess with the channel, then all of a sudden now it's on the news. Hey, I was taping the wrestling. What yeah. the hell happened? Oh, my God. Nothing was worse than that. Who- it's yeah. so funny you say the news. I've had so many like wrestling shows interrupted by my father switching to the news. And I, maybe that's why I don't like to live in the real world with news because you ruined that for me a long, long time ago. If, and and but, also I have to correct myself. I said Ric Flair from Greensboro, North Carolina, Charlotte, North Carolina, but still yeah. North Carolina nonetheless. So, you know, I lose my mark card on that one. Go ahead, Jonathan. No, no, no but, uh, but we understand. We understand what you mean, Dave. We know exactly what you meant. It seemed big for the NWA, though. It wasn't just the squash matches we saw on TBS. All of a sudden, here's Tom Miller, Dr. Tom Miller, doing the ring announcing in the tuxedo. And, it, you know, he, he's doing the ring announcing, and it's Sting, and it's Ric Flair, and the pageantry of it all. And, by the way, on top of that, a pretty good card, too. Pretty good card at the beginning. You got yes. Lex Luger and Rick Windham in a tag team, the Fantastics, the Midnight Express. They're, Jim Cornette tells a story all the time. Oh, they cut your time down. You got eight minutes. And Jim says, okay, guys, we're doing a Memphis-style match. We're going to be wild. That's not what we expect in the NWA. All of a sudden, the NWA turned into Memphis in that match, where it was just wild, which is commonplace now, but it was different for the NWA. And on down the line, a really good card culminating into a a commercial-free 45 minutes for Flair and Sting. I'm waiting for the commercial. No commercials. And the other thing that stood out to me is that you had two play-by-play announcers. You had Shivani and you had Jim Ross. Ross doing color coming from UWF, now in the NWA. So you, so when you think about it in hindsight, guys, Shivani, the longtime NWA guy, and Ross has all this information on Sting because he saw Sting grow up in the business. It's a great point, and also a great point you made too, Jonathan, is the fact that there was no commercial breaks during the matches. You know, it, they kept that intact, just like a – just like a football game, you would they would never go to a commercial break during the action of an actual sporting event. So why would they do it for professional wrestling? And I love the fact, too, that right before the match started, Tony, Tony Schiavone said that, hey, if this doesn't go the full 45 minutes, we have standby matches. And he mentioned Larry Zbysko and Shane Douglas, that they, would have, they were on the ready in case that this match didn't go the full 45 minutes. It's those little things that, again, like Tommy, you said about the realism. Right? Let's get into the match. We I talked just about, want to talk about the, the realism. Yeah. J.J. Dillon in the cage. Why? 
because he was always interfering. If, hey, because of TV constraints, normally this would be an hour, it's 45 minutes. Also, this match, we're going to have judges. They were very, very dotting the I's and crossing the T's. That's why it was so deemed as real. And, I mean, if you really think about, like, and that was a great point that Jonathan brought up, the commercial free, I don't remember when that happening in wrestling, but think about why they do it now so you don't turn the channel. Yeah. Yes. Brilliant. During that time, NWA is always saying, we got to go, we got to go, right, all the time. Where you're going to see something special and they cut off, you have to wait until next week. They want to make sure that you're going to see this entire match, you know, again, commercial free, which was just awesome, Dave. I, I love that. So, I mean, a lot of things happen in that. But just for context, Sting, to me, was on the precipice of being the wrestler of the 90s. Why? Because Hogan and the Ultimate Warrior was in the other channel. The, the NWA needed something fresh, and that fresh freshness was Sting, without question. That's a great point, Jonathan, because at that time, you're looking at the Ultimate Warrior being the future of the WWF, and you're looking at Sting being the future of the NWA. All right, now you have this match, 45-minute time limit because of the time constraints for Clash of the Champions. Like you said, Jonathan, great card, top to bottom, but this is an amazing main event, a different type of main event. Now you have judges just in case it goes the full 45 minutes. This is where you lose me just a little bit with the judges that they picked for it all right you got sandy scott i get it sandy scott makes sense that they have him as one of the judges then you have gary juster who was the baltimore promoter from the nwa okay that's a little bit of a stretch that you have you know the 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 booker for baltimore as one of the judges for a championship match but then it gets really wonky from there because you have Frankenhooker, Patty Mullen, as one of the judges, and that's what she's known for in her career as being Frankenhooker. I guess a, 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 I guess she was a, a Playboy uh, model or penthouse pet up until that point. Um, Eddie Haskell from Leave It to Beaver as one mm-hmm. of the judges. I, I know they had the revamped Leave It to Beaver on TBS at that time, but that's a stretch. And Eddie Haskell is dressing as Eddie Haskell with the high school sweater. Uh, and then and Jason Harvey. He was, that, uh, he was looking for that convention work, bro. Come on now. You remember me? Hi, I'm Troy McClure. You remember me as? And, and then Dr- Jason Harvey as, you know, the star of, of um, the Wonder Years as one of the judges. A little wonky when you look at the judges. So my, not the best way to start off the match, guys, when those are the judges. Now, if you gave me, you know, old school NWA champions like we saw later on, you know, when it came to Steamboat and Flair, if you got like Terry Funk as one of the judges, you know, then you got me. But I thought the judges were a little wonky. Jonathan, if you can remember back at that time, did it take a little bit of the way for the match for you with the judges that they picked for the matchup? Just how they showed the judges over the shoulder. It's Crockett TV. It was never great all the time. It was just, you know, you're, you're filming through the ropes. You know, you're missing some spots. I mean, sometimes it just wasn't the best TV, but it was our TV. We enjoyed it, right? It was just strange. 
But you know, for hindsight, again, we're in high school. You know, the one thing that was great, Tommy and Dave, about that era of the NWA is that everything seemed like business. Everyone had a shirt and tie. They would have these vignettes that were in a, in a boardroom, Dusty with the briefcase, you know, with the hor horseman and that matchup with Dusty and, and uh, Tully Blanchard. Everything seemed like business. Jim Crockett, shirt and tie, everything. So when I saw Gary Juster, when I saw Sandy Scott, I thought, wow, boy, these guys must really mean something, right? Just because of the way that they were dressed. It wasn't Hollywood. It was just straight business. And so I didn't know them at the time as a kid. I thought, well, these guys must be important. Now, having Eddie Caskill in there, it's kind of like, okay, that show is so washed so many years ago. Why is he sitting there? I thought at the time that the uh, Patty Muller, I just thought that that was a plant by flair. I thought that. I told my friend Antoine, I'm like, she's going to rig this thing because they slept together. All That's right. what I thought. And, and you know what, Jonathan? <laughs> Hold that thought because let me tell you something. You may be on to something on how this ends as well. And Patty Mullen, the way she reacted with a certain judgment of that match. So we'll get back we'll get back to that. But let's take let's talk about the body of the match. Forty five minute match. Tom, go ahead. I just wanted to say just a few notes because this is a master's class. Uh Jason Hervey, big wrestling fan. His mom was a huge Hollywood agent. His mom was also the one who got Terry Funk into Roadhouse and was Terry's agent into that. So that was that kind of connection of, you know, hey, this guy's a big fan and his mom, you know, uh, is an agent. I also like when, when you said, what did you like about that? And you said everything was, I would have just left it at everything. We're all not smart really to the business. And it was such a more simpler time, but they did a lot of things great. Like even I'm watching it, you know, to the point where, yes, I'm a wrestling purist. I did not like the judges, but you know why they were doing it? Because this time we've had, think of all the celebrity interactions that we've had at WrestleManias uh, yeah. already. So now this is the NWOs. Hey, we're on television. We're snazzing it up. And I think like this also probably came up from a little bit of more TV people within TBS that are throwing, we need to do cross promotion and all that stuff. But even like the simple things earlier, like, the paying your dues process. Who's the guy who's getting the ring gear, David? Yeah, Teddy Long. There you go. Hall of Famer. You got to come yep. up the right way in the industry. Um, the blue guardrails that are also yep. further away from the fans, um, not really there to help stop the fans from hopping the guardrail, but really just like when they're even being used, like even when Sting gets thrown into them, I'm like, man, those fans are far away because they're not trying to cram all the people together if they could, but that was like the safer distance you had because of like the matches were wild, wild west. And uh, I, the ring steps, the ring steps from the, from here comes the walkway right up into the ring. They're really a hazard if you're getting thrown out of the ring that way. And they, you know, now it's standard that they're in a corner or caddy corner, but this was normal presentation if you had ring steps, because you mentioned Memphis, Memphis didn't have ring steps. And right. sometimes they didn't even have a skirt you saw underneath yeah. the ring. Yes. So these are all like, you know, old school things. But yet we're talking about a match that we all watched. And I think we would all be in agreement that the match still held up today. Oh, yeah, for sure. 
I mean, there were things that happened. Go ahead, Jonathan. No, I was just going to say that with 2024 eyes going back to look at it, I was thinking to myself in the back of my mind, you know what? Must be a big house. Why don't they turn the lights up? And I thought, nope, in 88, it's actually fine because the focus is on the ring. Yeah. It says they do 6,000. I don't know if, you know if they had empty seats there or not. But the point is, though, is that in my mind, I'm like, you know what? I'm sure it's a big house. Show it. And I thought, nope. In that time, the, the ring lights are down. It's focused on the ring where it's supposed to be. Kind of like a Lakers game where everyone just focused on the on the floor. Just a, a couple of rows where you can see the celebrities or the fans. But just the way it was set and the way it was lit, it was perfect for the time. The Busted Open Podcast is now available on YouTube. This is Dave LaGreca, host of Busted Open, the number one pro wrestling show on the planet. You can now watch and listen to the award-winning Busted Open Podcast every single day on YouTube. Our best interviews, behind-the-scenes access, and some of our best content from the past. All available right now when you go to YouTube.com slash at Busted Open Podcast. Subscribe right now. Back then, they also didn't darken the house to show empty seats. I've watched a lot of tapings, and I'm looking at, well, there's a lot of empty seats here. Early, and I mean, as much as 85 NWA tapings, where then also the fans come later. But I'm watching, I was like, man, this is a shot that never would exist today because there's all these empty seats. I mean, AWA did the same. Like, you would see rows, the wrestlers walking past rows of fans that weren't there. Well, that happened. That happened. History. You know, we talked about, you know, WWE having uh, a programming against the bunkhouse stampede, which was like the really big first pay-per-view for Crockett promotions. And they had the wrong time on the ticket. So like the show started and fans didn't start fans didn't start trickling in until an hour into the show. Like it was, it was a, that was a mess, but that's, that may be a a special podcast for another day. But you know, you talk about empty seats. I remember watching the bunkhouse stampede and saying, Oh my God, this place is half empty because they put the wrong time on the ticket. Yep. The other thing that's interesting, like to note, this was really NWA's or WCW's counter to WWE throwing the first ever punch by doing the free Royal Rumble yeah, uh, opposite Starcade. So this was kind of like their receipt. And they went with, I mean, think about it again, how big you have to be of, a, of an up-and-coming star to be wrestling in the main event on such a heavy, I mean, against WrestleMania four. Yeah, and and it and it drew a very big audience for TBS at the time as well. Uh, Forty five minutes, like and listen when you look at that match. How about you know we know Flair for the chops. Five minutes into the match, guys, Sting's chest is all bloodied from the chops that Flair was delivering. I mean, that was just five minutes into the match. That's the first time I saw that as a wrestling fan. And I've been watching wrestling since the 70s. I've, first of all, the chops are not in in the 70s and early 80s that I saw. Not quite like that. Unless it was a Wahoo McDaniel that would come in to the AWA in Chicago. I hadn't seen a chest bleed like that before. And so when you come to think about it, for the majority of the match, that was my focus. It's like the only blood we see is Sting until toward the end of the match with Flair. But actually, that's interesting that you bring that up, Dave, because I hadn't seen a bloody chest from Chops before, which really pushes Flair over the edge. Like, boy, his knife edge is so good. 
that Sting's chest is bleeding. Yeah, it's funny you say that as well, Dave. Uh, Watching it back, I didn't remember the blood until I saw it. And then I looked and I was just like, because I knew I had to do this master's class. Um, I I just, to people who've never wrestled before, if you watch any sport, football, a guy's bloody, he wipes his, his, you know, hand on his jersey or whatever's bleeding. Eventually he goes to the sideline. People are picking him up, you know, patching up the cut basketball baseball you know hey a guy slides in he's bloody somebody runs out to cut this guy's got to wrestle about another 40 more minutes yep with an open cut that's going to keep on getting opened and hit and if anyone's even cut itself as minute as a paper cut or a little cut somewhere in your body think of someone just kept on hitting it like that these are the things that like when i just say why i have even more admiration for what back then even sting did because you know we we did a whole master's class on nerves he's even said it man like hey i wasn't ready thank god rick flair carried me through this match and you could see it i went back and watch it and i was just like this is why i love wrestling and this is also why i loved rick flair so much because whenever people would say oh he'd have the same match or he did Ric Flair was brilliant in this. Also giving somebody confidence as every minute went by. Whether And yes, they were in a headlock for a long time. They were in a bear hug at all time. But when you have somebody who's nervous, when you have somebody who's never been in matches that long, this is where you do need that veteran. Uh, if I'm doing the math, Ric Flair is in his 30s at mm-hmm. this point. And look at the performance and also, Ric Flair doesn't get enough credit for his body because Rick is jacked. I mean, not shredded like Sting, but I mean, if you look at his upper torso, his shoulders, his chest, his arms, they're gigantic. And then doing the things that he did and go like, how many military press slams did we see? How many hip tosses did we see? How many going to the tops did we see? And every reaction, and again, because the time was so different, but I say it's a better time, they're reacting to everything. Everything. That knife hand chop, which I love that you described, because it exactly what you did, what you said. If I took a knife and slit you across your chest, that's what you're going to get. You're going to get cut. When Rick did that, it cuts him open. But think about what he really did. When he did that, Sting fired up. And like, and Flair's like, oh my God, this isn't working right now. But then later on, if you go back and you watch the entire match, which thankfully we got the chance to all do, those chops started working. Why? Because the wrestlers started getting tired. It's beautiful. And, it's and, beautiful in its art form. And it's funny because, Jonathan, you mentioned before about watching it in 2024 eyes. You know, especially here on Busted Open, you know, Bully does a great job of like breaking down the officials and the credibility of the officials. He may have had a field day with this match because there was a lot of wrestling outside the ring, though Tommy Young did do a good job even when he went outside the ring to continue the count. But how about when there's, you know, Sting's got Flair in the cradle and Flair grabs the second rope to break it and Tommy Young kicks his arm. He kicks his arm because, and, 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 Tony Schiavone and Jim Ross did an amazing job talking about, hey, just like with the referees in an NBA game or a football game, 
game to game, they may judge things differently. You know, Flair does, there's the chopping, and then Flair goes over the top rope, and Tommy Young calls it off. Because if he threw somebody over the top rope at that time, it was an automatic disqualification. But but Tommy Young throws it off. And then, yes. and then Jim Ross and Tony Schiavone do a great job of describing that. Hey, in this championship match, with the implications, Tommy Young doesn't want the match to end in a DQ, so he throws out the over-the-top rope disqualification. Great job across the board. And again, you can explain that with a lot that goes on. Sometimes it's the official's discretion. So if he lets them fight for a little bit longer outside the ring, or if he lets a certain disqualification go, it's the official's discretion. Just like in a certain NBA game, they're not going to call the ticky-tack foul or the pass interference based on how the game is going. I thought that was a great job describing that. Tony Schiavone and Jim Ross did just that in that match. Yeah, I, I think that Tommy Young, first of all, my favorite referee, he always had the perfect cadence. And the only one, by the way, in the history of the business that after a three count holds up the arm to let the ring, you know, the the person over there at the timekeeper's table let you know that's a fall. The fist goes up. That's a fall. Every time after the third count, that's a fall. And I love that because he used to fly around. And the thing I was thinking about at the time in 88 is, OK, if JJ is in the cage and no horsemen are coming down, this is going to be a fair fight for Sting. That's what I was thinking, because more times than not, Tommy Young is missing something. Tommy Young is being tied up because of, of interference. And at, at the time, I'm thinking this is a great opportunity for Sting to be able to get this done because Tommy Young won't be distracted. It is Flair. It's Sting. If he gets knocked down, if no one's coming down, Young be, will be able to call this a fair fight. And so that was my thought at the time as a kid saying, hey, it's the, the best referee in there. You have to worry about outside interference. At least that's what I was thinking. And Tommy Young was the perfect guy for it. The There's social no media referee police weren't activated. Uh, so that's one thing. David, simple ex explanations like that. Uh, I watch a lot of NBA and, and I love when they have like Charles Barkley and Shaq and they're sitting there and they've shown clips where uh, Barkley and he just gets elbowed in the face, big pull apart, fight back. And they were like, neither, you know, neither of us got thrown out of the game, suspended or anything. We, we were we were right back into it. Or I went and got stitches. I came back out on the field uh, on the court. And it was just because it was a different game. Also, the referees allowed a lot or you'd see a guy go up for a dunk and get dunked himself blocked. And there wouldn't be big foul. It would be like, you know, hey, I'm going to outscore or dunk on that guy again later for what he just did so and, just, again much different and simpler times think about it chiefs chiefs and the eagles had one of the greatest super bowl games of all time but what do people remember the ticky tack foul at the end of that game that led to yes. the Chiefs' score and winning the super bowl you can't do that so i love that referee's discretion all right let's get now to the end of the match uh, Sting has a scorpion deathlock on Ric Flair. He puts it on with about 40 seconds left in the match, and then they're counting down the time. And you're like, is Flair going to tap? Is Flair going to tap? Is he going to say, I quit? And he, it doesn't. You get the, you get the uh, time limit draw. You get the, t the bell ringing. It's a great moment because both guys are exhausted. Flair's exhausted, but just like a champ, he would not quit, which I thought was a great moment. Then it goes to the judges. And this is where I'm completely confused. 
So maybe Rick, you can guys I, hang on, can I just want to rake your eyes for half a second. Go ahead, rake my eyes. A lot of fans talk about stuff or, or they're giving it away that it's going to be a draw. If again, this is real, if you watch hockey, if you watch anything where there's a timer, people are watching the clock. People players, especially in hockey, you'll see them they're skating, they're skating, they want to get the puck away even if it's a 6 on 5 uh advantage but they have to always be mindful of the clock. This is also a way for your champion, if I could just hold on for a few more seconds. And this is a way to tell him to build that up. Where today's fans, it's just like, oh, they're giving away. It's going to be a draw. There's going to be a moment when they're in six, five, four, three, two, and at one, the guy's going to tap. But this is also where if I'm the performer, just like in real sports, God, I just got to hold them for this last drive or I got to hold them for for these last seconds. And instead of looking at the clock, I'm getting an audible sound. So it, it's so much like where people, when you try to dissect it, that's a real thing that like, uh, or if you've ever had to go an hour and you don't like when people, this is before headsets in the ears, how much more time do I have? Because you want to be close to that. Because that used to be wrestling industry standard. Like you weren't a pro until you went an hour. And I know this is 45 minutes, but this is a way for your champion to also be like, man, I just got to hunt. I'm in so much pain. I'm in so much agony. Three, two, one. Oh my God, I survived. It actually adds to the injury. Sorry about that, Dave. I, I no, no, I, I no, I, I, I agree with you because it adds to it to the match, but I do want to get into the judges. Oh, go ahead, Jonathan. No, just very briefly, uh, two things with that. One, I thought as the match progressed, especially in that 35 to 45 minute mark, I thought that Sting garnered more confidence where, where, where you looked at the match and said, boy, he's getting chopped outside and he's, he might be blowing up. Who knows? Right. But you, but as a fan at the time, I'm thinking, come on, Sting, hang in there, man. You know, you're taking on the champ. You're going to be okay. Don't worry about JJ Dillon. He's in the shark cage. But I thought like when he's in the figure four leg lock Sting and he's like moving flare along, and we're seeing him, and he could see him beating his chest. I thought he garnered more confidence as the match went on. The other thing is, too, that was the first time we saw Sting without face paint. Yeah, <laughs> and, right, because by the end of that match, it was gone. <laughs> You're right. <laughs> Again, 2024 eyes, okay, it happens all the time. But we thought that the paint would stay on in 88. It just shows you how arduous that match was, where you get a pretty much – a clean face uh, sting without the pa- the face paint. So that also gives you, Tommy, a little bit of a, an idea of how tough it was for Sting. Sting was in there for so long, he sweated out his face paint. And he was beat up so much that he looked different than what he did when he first came into the match. So, again, something different. There's a nuance, but something a little bit that we did not expect. And and the credibility that it gave to to Sting after that match. Like I think everybody, even me as a Flair fan, was like, all right, this guy's gonna be the next NWA world heavyweight champion. And I don't think there was any doubt about it. All right, now this is where the problem comes in with the judges. And it's just like Tommy for me for WrestleMania three. Some of the credibility comes off of WrestleMania three uh, and the match between Randy Savage and Ricky Steamboat. Why? Because of the interfer- interference from George the Animal Steel. It's just enough that takes a little bit away from me where I can't look at that match as one of the all-time greats because of the interference from George the Animal Steel. And why does it bother me so much? Because it, it is a factor in the end of the match. 
George Animal Steel doesn't just interfere, but he factors into the decision of the end of that match. To me, it takes a little bit of the credibility away from it. That's just my opinion. Right. Same thing here, because it didn't make any sense. Because you go to the judges. Now, Jonathan, I was explaining this to Tommy. I had this match. I watched it on Peacock, but then I went back to one of my DVDs, my burn DVDs, to watch it as well because I didn't understand what was happening. They go to the judges, and there's five judges, right? They go to Patty Mullen, and in a couple of years, he's the star of Frankenhooker, and she she picks Ric Flair. Now, going back to what Jonathan said, as soon as she says Ric Flair, she has a big smile on her, on her face. She looks up to Ric Flair and gives her a little, like, how you do with her index finger, like, you know. And right away, I'm thinking, all right, there's something going on between Patty Mullen and the nature boy Ric Flair. Mm-hmm. Be- because if you really look at that match, even though Ric Flair is the champ, it's very hard for me to say Ric Flair. Why? Because Sting dominated that match. I mean, if you really look at that matchup, 75% of that match, Sting is dominating. So I found it very, very interesting that Patty Mullen decided to go with Ric Flair, and then she gives a smile and a little how you do with her index finger. Very, very (laughs) interesting to me. Then they go to Gary Juster, and Gary Mm -hmm. Juster picks Sting. Okay. Then they go to Sandy Scott. And Sandy Scott called it a draw. So then they call the match a draw. What about the two other judges? They never go to the two other judges. They just went to Patty Mullen, Gary Juster, and Sandy Scott. Why did they not go to Jason Hervey? And why did they not go to Eddie Haskell? They never went. Eddie Haskell had no idea where he was, by the way. No. I had no idea no. where he was. He wasn't even watching the match. Every time they looked at him, he's looking at Patty Mullen. He ain't even looking at the match in the ring. Why did they never go to the two other judges? Mystery. Don't know why. Jonathan? Yeah, all, all you needed was three judges. The other two, if they were going to be there as guests, I get that. But Herbie was looking at Mullen as well. So it's just kind of like... If you have the two as guests, that's fine. But all you need, just like boxing, is three judges. You don't need five. So that's why it was confusing. It should have just been the three. And Sandy Scott, by the way, did not mind the heat. He's Sandy Scott. He's like, you know what? Put it on me. I'll call the draw. Sure. No problem. And by the way. I was a booker. I'll take the heat. So yeah. so what you're telling me is that Jason Hervey and Eddie Haskell weren't judges. They were just They were just sitting at the table. They weren't judges. I'm guessing, right? They weren't, right? They were not. They were not judges. They were guests of Dusty, because because Dusty was making. He's trying to make Hollywood pitches, baby. I'm trying to make TV. That's what he would. That's what he would say, right? Tommy, didn't know. he say that? Uh, yeah, he no, he TV. did. Yes. But he would also. I I honestly, I think when that stuff happens, it has a lot to do with the networks and how we can get them in. Uh, a very interesting thing that Jonathan brought up, uh, and just you know, talking. I didn't realize it. After this, Sting was a superhero. He really was. But this match also humanized him. Without that face paint, we saw the man behind the face paint. And we saw a man who was in an epic struggle. And even though he didn't come away with that title, he was now a made man. 
And, you know, it, it was, and I don't remember how many times we've seen Sting without the makeup. And yes, it's covered in, you know, he still had little remnants on his eyes and, and, and you know, covered in sweat. But here's now, it, we, we saw Superman turn into Clark Kent. And maybe that did also help Sting's connection with the people. Um, I don't know if I said this earlier, but, you know, also like with the, the leg lock versus the figure four leg of Earth, the Stinger uh, leg lock. And then also the woo versus the ow. I mean, these were all different counters to each other. It was the I mean, Ric Flair and Sting were perfect together. They were the perfect heel babyface combo. And that's why it's so awesome. As well as Shivani being there. I wish Jim Ross could be there. I wish Tommy Young could be there. I wish J.J. Dillon could be there. Just so we can, we're talking about something that we all were a part of in high school, and we're going to see it one last time. And that's why it's so special. It really and truly is. All right, to wrap it up really quick, uh, Tommy, do you think Sting, Flair, Clash of Champions 88 was Sting's best match? I do think uh, Sting versus Flair at the Clash of Champions was Sting's best match. Greatest match of all time for Sting career. Jonathan Hood? Yeah, I would say the same. He was Sting was in so many great matches with Vader and Muda, um, with Lex Luger, other matches with Ric Flair. But I would say because he was able to get out of the shadow of being part of a faction in the UWF, comes over and was so different than everybody else, that 45-minute match made you want to see Clash 2, Clash 3 moving forward because of that main event. You said, boy, they got their own special. And there's not these these wonky finishes. You know what? I'm going to watch Clash 2 in Miami at the James L. Knight Center because of that match. So, yes, I would say that's Sting's greatest achievement, taking on Flair, that 45-minute classic. Thanks for listening to the Busted Open podcast. Thanks to you, Tommy. Thanks to you, Jonathan. Don't forget, you can listen to Busted Open seven days a week, seven days a week, live from 9 a.m. to noon Eastern time. Tommy, a big part of it. Jonathan Hood, our host, along with Justin Labar, each and every Sunday. We'll talk to you next time right here on the Busted Open podcast. Busted Open is part of the SiriusXM Sports Podcast Network. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, Please give a five-star rating and leave a review. Subscribe today wherever you stream your podcast. Catch the full three hours of Busted Open every day of the week at 9 a.m. Eastern on SiriusXM Fight Nation, channel 156. Go to SiriusXM.com backslash Busted Open Trial to start your free trial today.